Baruch Hashem. Good morning, everyone. Boker Tov. Glad that you're here this morning. want to thank you for joining me this morning as we're looking at Parashah Noach, the sixth reading. This is the sixth reading, Parashah Noach. You know, I want to say I've really enjoyed uh, having this time with, with all of us this morning. Uh, in each morning, and with Hashem's help, we'll continue, continue these... Uh, you know, daily and what have you. Uh, so it's been wonderful. It's been a real joy to be with you, and I'm glad you're watching and all the people who are watching. And prayerfully, it's a great start to your day as we're starting the parasha, Baruch Hashem. I also want you to know that uh, I'm getting a little uh, better, I guess, with technology, maybe. So we're having uh, this here on live stream on our, not live stream, excuse me, that's something else, but on uh, uh, Facebook Live on our Facebook page. But I'm also simultaneously recording this on uh, the podcast Anchor, so you can get the audio file from it um, as well, Baruch Hashem. So it looks like everything is going good. Well, let's dive right into the Torah portion, the Aliyah a day that keeps the Yetzirah away. Amen. <clears throat> Parashah Noach, the sixth reading, begins in chapter 9. And begins with verse 18. 18, the, the, the verse for Chai. So it says, Vaihu b'nei Noach. It says here, The sons of Noach who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, Japheth, Ham being the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole world was spread out. I might have mentioned yesterday, I don't know, but I asked my family the other night as we were reading through a Torah portion, I said, can you imagine being one of eight people on the entire earth? It's just, uh, and at this point, there's more than eight, obviously, because Ham has had a son, but can you imagine what that must have been like? I just, I just, there's something to, to say kind of Selah and to see um, kind of what that must have been like. From the Kehol Tumash, which breaks it down using Rashi's commentary, kind of inter interpolated, it says here, Having been promised by God that his progeny would not be wiped out, Noah resumed marital relations with his wife, as did his sons with their wives. The sons of Noah came out of the ark, were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. They each had a, a number of children. Ham was the father of four sons, the youngest of which was Canaan. Ham uh, was incensed that his father Noah was trying to have more children. All right, so this is kind of the backstory. It gives the backstory why was Ham? Uh, we're going to learn the story in just a moment of of um, the sin that he committed against his father. But the, the question becomes, why was he so upset with his father? Why would he disrespect his father so much? Is because he was incensed that his father was going to have more children. So it says, Ham was incensed that his father Noah was trying to have more children. He assumed that Cain had killed his brother Abel because he wanted the whole world for himself. Since Noah was the new beginning of the human race, Ham considered himself already deprived enough by having to share the world with two other brothers, and should not be required to share it with additional brothers. So basically, Ham, according to uh, the sages, according to what they brought brought down from the backstory uh, of everything, is that Ham himself was greedy. That ultimately he wanted 
the world for himself. He didn't want to share the spoils, so to speak, with everybody else. What does this teach us? You know, Mashiach, Yeshua, taught, he said, if, you're, if your eye is, is dark, right, you have an evil eye, then your whole body is evil. What is that talking about? Ultimately, it's talking about uh, euphemism for being greedy. This is the problem with greed, and this is why that Judaism and, uh, well, Judaism is synonymous with, with, with Hashem in, in the Bible. So when I say Judaism in the Bible, I, I don't mean to insinuate that Judaism somehow yeah, is different. But the point being is that uh, this is why we emphasize so much the act of charity. So one way in, in which one can produce tshuva for their life, can overturn a bad verdict, right? Obviously... Uh, we overturn uh, the, the bad verdict of death in, in our life through the atoning sacrifice of Messiah Yeshua. He's the one who tears up the evil decree against us. The evil decree against us, as if you're watching this, you're probably aware, but there may be uh, new people, and I, I sure hope there are new people who are watching. The evil decree spoken of in the letter to the Colossians is not God's Torah. It's not the law of Moses. It's not the Mosaic law. It's not the law of God. That's scripture. The law of God is scripture. The law of God, the Torah, the law of Moses, Mosaic law, those are all synonymous terms. That's the first five books of the Bible, which includes, by the way, the book of the Breshit, the book of Genesis. So God didn't tear up his word. He tore up the evil decree against us. He tore up the judgment against us. So we, so that we're talking about now, but now that we're in the covenant, how do we how do we turn things around? If we find ourselves already in the covenant, we're not trying to get into the covenant, we're in the covenant, how do we turn things around? Well, one of the ways that we turn things around, of course, is through prayer. Uh, but one of the things the sages say is the one, one way in which we can make atonement, so to speak, for a sin that we've committed, understanding we're already in the covenant, right? So I want to be clear about that because many people, because of unfortunate theology, they think that Jews try to work for their salvation. You know, we do things in order to be saved. Jews are already in the covenant. That's why we're called Jews, right? Um, so the, the, the situation is once you're in the covenant, how do you fix things? And one of the ways in which we fix things is through charity, through charity. And so this is the importance of being generous, to live a life of generosity. I would venture to say that if someone is really just has a generous soul, it's not impossible to sin, of course, but it's much more difficult to sin. Uh, greed leads to a lot of problems. If you really think about it, greed leads to a lot of issues, leads to, to theft, it leads to robbery, it leads to uh, all types of things, right? You're trying to steal somebody's stuff, you, somebody's worked very hard for something, they've put a lot of time and effort in it, you come along and you want to steal it, you want to take it, right? Uh, you want to you want to benefit off of them and so on. That's just greed. That's from a, a stingy soul, so to speak. So Ham had that. He did not want to share uh, with his brothers the world. So we continue reading. So it says here in the 20, uh, 20th verse, Noah, the man of the earth. Now in Hebrew, in the tw in the 20th verse, it says, um, where are we at here? Vahayel Noach Ish Hadama. The sages point out that, that Noah had kind of a regression here. He went from being a Ish Zadik, a righteous man in, in the Torah, and but here he's called an Ish Hadama, a man of the earth. He's kind of gone downward in his flow. Whereas uh, no, uh, Moshe was originally called a man of Egypt. 
And later in Deuteronomy, he's called a man of God. Um, this is also a good lesson for us. Now, I'm not suggesting, and I don't think the sages were suggesting either, that, that Noah was a bad man. But what we see is we see, uh, at least based on, on the, the, the Hebrew, which the Hebrew is divine, that he's gone from being an Ishzadik to a, a man of the earth. He's kind of made a regression. And this is another point about our lives, is that it's not so important uh, how we started, it's not so important what happened to us five years ago, 10 years ago, a minute ago, or even 60 seconds ago. You know, we need to tell people when we've, we've had a, a bad moment, we, we make shuva immediately, we ask God to forgive us, and maybe if we've hurt somebody, we ask them to forgive us, and then we realize that we were a different person than we were 30 seconds ago, or 60, or 60 seconds ago, right? Incidentally, um, uh, the sages talk about the fact, the rabbis talk about the fact that when we see uh, a godly person, when we see them committing an offense, we should think good about them. We should, we should think, well, they, they've, they've already repented of that. The minute that they did something wrong, they've already repented of that, and we should think good of them. But going back to what I was saying, we have to make sure that we finish the race strong. So it's, we need to have tears of sorrow. We need to have shuva. We need to uh, uh, look back on our life and say, you know, or, uh, what, what, where are we and what have we done? But the good thing is we need to make sure that at the end of our life, we're called uh, a man of God or a woman of God uh, and not the other way around. So some people uh, really understand that, really get that. And then other people are hampered by that. They're worried about their past. I didn't grow up Jewish. I didn't grow up religious. I had all these kind of things bad happen in my life. I'm overcoming a lot of things right now. Uh, maybe I, I got into a lot of trouble, so I'm dealing with that. And all that's well and good. But the, the important thing is where are you now and where are you, where are you headed? Because what's important is how we finish the race. And every day we have to be striving every day we have to be uh, advancing towards the goal. So, it says that he was a man of earth. He debased himself and planted a vineyard. He debased himself and planted a vineyard. Where did Noah get the, uh, the, the, the item, uh, the, the grape from? According to um, very, various different commentaries, he actually got the uh, grapevine in order to plant the vineyard from Ganadin. It actually says here in the Baal Turim, it says that he planted, uh, he planted a grapevine that he had taken from Ganadin. And in the footnotes it says, Noah found a grapevine that had been ejected from Ganadin with its clusters still attached. He tasted its fruit and found them very pleasing, so he planted a vineyard with them. This comes from Pirkei, uh, the Rabbi Eliezer in the 23rd chapter. So this is very interesting because Noah takes a cluster of grapes from Ganadin and the first thing he does when he leaves, leaves the ark is he plants a vineyard. And then the commentators bring down that really what he should have done is he should have first planted uh, a crop of wheat or maybe a crop of barley perhaps in order to bring forth bread upon the earth, in order to bring something that would actually sustain the earth. Instead, he brought down and planted a vineyard. Why would, this, would the commentators say that he should have first brought down, um, should have first brought down bread? Well, 
I would like to take it back and look at it a bit esoterically, a bit spiritually. When we have Kiddush on Arab Shabbat or a Yom Tov, um, but particularly Arab Shabbat, we have Kiddush, which represents uh, you know God's holiness. the 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 wine itself um, is the Torah. It represents the Torah. Uh, then, when we the next thing we do after we have Kiddush. And we recognize that uh, through Kiddush, we recognize that God is the creator of the world and that he set apart the seventh day, uh, this, this, you know, Saturday as, we, as it's called in our uh, culture. Um, he set apart the seventh day as, as the uh, eternal Shabbat that will always be the Shabbat. And then the next thing we do is we go and have this ceremonial hand washing, which is represented, uh, representative of the mikvah, of a mikvah. Then from the mikvah, the very next thing we do is we partake of the bread, the challah, which represents the manna that fell from heaven and provides our substance. So that's the spiritual picture. We have Kiddush Torah. We go from there to mikvah, and then from mikvah we eat the bread. And so what we have with the story of Noah, if, if I can use that as kind of a template, we have the ark, which is, remember what I said a couple days ago in the, the fourth aliyah, was... The Teva, the Word of God, right? So we have the Torah. The Ark is the Torah. So that's Kiddush. What happens after we enter the Ark? The Mikvah comes. We, the earth is Mikvah, right? The earth becomes Mikvah. And then what should have happened is after we leave the Ark, after we've had Natilat, after we've washed our hands, we should plant bread and begin partaking of divine bread. But instead... Noah decided that he was going to plant a vineyard, and all kinds of trouble uh, sprang up. Why did, uh, why did Noah do this? Noah's a righteous man. He's an Ish Zadik. Why did he do it? Well, in the Kehold Humash in the footnotes, and I've got lots of different notes here, so I'm kind of transitioning books back and forth in the, in the time we have. Um, it says here, according to the Midrash, the forbidden fruit... Eve offered Adam was wine, was wine. Uh, some, there's many different opinions as to what the fruit of the tree was uh, from which Adam and Eve ate. There's a lots of different ideas, lots of different opinions. One of the opinions uh, is that it was a, uh, it was grape. It was a grapevine. Uh, and so here it says it was wine. Eve was aware of the importance of joy and sought to attain it through wine. What it's talking about here is talking about the, the Jewish idea that one can only serve God truly and effectively with joy. We cannot serve God if we are depressed. Not, not truly, not really, not effectively. Uh, and I just want to pause here and say something that is so important for us to understand is that if we are people who tend to have a very negative attitude. If we are the, if we are the, uh, the, the typical Eeyores, we walk around generally with, with a frown, uh, we, we say, oh, that's, that's not going to work, that's not going to happen, I don't know. We're con continually waiting for the next shoe to drop. We're always and forever just negative people. We're just generally negative, and then even worse... Uh, God forbid we should have a bitter root of judgment against somebody, or we should have we should have unforgiveness, and we don't let it go, and then we just anyway we become bitter people. We've really got to deal with that. 
That is one of the worst midot, one of the worst character traits that somebody can have. It is very important that if that is uh, a person's disposition, that they should really work hard to become a positive outlook kind of people, a happy people, give people a smile. If you're not somebody who walks around with a smile, it may be uh, uncomfortable at first to walk around uh, with a big smile on your face, but you really need to practice walking around with a smile. In fact, uh, the commentators who write, um, uh, the editors anyway who write uh, with respect, I don't have the book in front of me, but re re with respect to Ramban's Letter of the Ages uh, and the Vilna Gon, I know it was, a, it was the Vilna Gon, excuse me, it was the Igris Hagra, they write that, the, that we actually owe people uh, a smile. We owe people a smile in as much as the owner of the field owes the corner of the field to uh, the person uh, who is poor. And when the owner of the field doesn't give the corner of the field away, it's not that he's just keeping his corner. He's actually literally stealing from the poor person because that corner belongs to the poor person. So, not to get off track, but this is why God says if you're not paying your tithes, you're not being faithful to give to your synagogue, your community, uh, you know, and so on. You're not giving the charity. It's not that you're just withholding your money. You are literally stealing that which is rightfully belonging to the other party or entity, right? So, um, but having said that, the most of what I'm trying to communicate mostly is that we need to be joyful people. We need to practice being joyful even when the circumstances aren't joyful. Not easy, but important. So, Eve knew this. Hava knew that she needed to be joyful. So she failed. Uh, she was trying to attain this joy. She thought, hey, listen, I can attain this joy by drinking some wine. Uh, which wine brings joy? But we've got to be careful because what she, she failed, it says here, to experience holy joy. Since she succumbed to the feelings of self-awareness and ego that are the byproducts of less than holy celebrating. Prior to the sin of, prior to the sin, Adam and Eve were merely a vehicle of divine expression. Once they took the fateful sip of wine, they gained self-awareness and began to operate in a realm of seeming separateness from God. Noah, so here now we're getting back to why Noah planted the vineyard. What was he trying to do? Because sometimes we do things and we have good intentions, but we have bad judgment. When I was in the service, that was one of the things that we... Uh, was often told to us when we when we messed up um, was that our superiors would say that was good initiative, but it was poor judgment, and it was a rebuke to be sure, but it was a rebuke intended to help us to think things through um, moving forward. Noah in this situation had a good initiative, but it was poor judgment. He had, he was attempting to rectify Eve's error. Noah was trying, in his way, to rectify Eve's error. He wanted to experience joy without self-awareness. He therefore sought to negate his selfhood through drunkenness. So he thought by becoming drunk, he could negate his, his selfhood. But this, it's right, they write, this endeavor was misguided since the goal is not to numb the mind and emotions through drinking, but rather 
to lose the self through humility and surrender to God. So in other words, that we're not, we're not supposed to get drunk so we lose ourself. That's not the way. Uh, because that opens the door to debauchery, which we're going to uh, learn about here in just a second from uh, Rabbi Monk. What we're, what we're actually supposed to do is nullify self through humility and surrender to, to God. This is why the Judaism says that the highest form of worship is uh, emulating God. The highest form of worship is obedience to God's word. Why? Why is the highest form of worship not singing? Why is the highest form of worship not dancing? Many people, I guess, if you said to them, um, how do you worship God? Most people would say, I would imagine, I would imagine that people would say, the way in which we worship God is we sing, we pray. Maybe some people would say we dance. Maybe some people would say we meditate or whatever. The Jew would say the way in which we worship God is by following his commandments. Why? Because when we do that, we are expressing a true sense of humility and, more importantly, a surrender to God's will. That, my friends, is what negates self and makes us a true vehicle for God. Because the fact of the matter is, is that everything I said earlier about dancing, singing, praising, lifting up the hands, uh, uh, meditating, all that is wonderful. And, and frankly, I, I do all of that. Uh, and many of you do as well. But the fact of the matter is, is that we could be people who worship, uh, excuse me, who, who sing, who dance, who clap, who praise, who lift our hands in the sanctuary, who pray and, and uh, meditate, and yet not follow God's commandments. And as a result, we're not humble and we're not surrendering our will to God, really. Uh, because we can stand up and lift our hands and say, yes, Lord, yes, yes, Lord, and, and just pray and just have three hours of, of worship and then walk away and not follow God's word. And everything we just did is ineffectual for, for that, for all intents and purposes. This is the point I'm trying to make. So uh, the highest form of worship, therefore, is to emulate God. So it, it continues, said, selfless joy was finally achieved by Sarah, uh, who epitomized uh, self, selflessness. Sarah was the epitome of selflessness. Why? It's one of the reasons why uh, her great uh, uh, her great people, her great character trait was one of hospitality. So it says, true joy is born of humility. True joy, I love this part in the Kehol Tumash. True joy is born of humility. Since one who is humble does not feel deserving of anything and is therefore never disappointed. Isn't that beautiful? I, I really pray that Hashem should help all of us get to that point. We're, we're, we're so humble we, as a result of being humble, we don't deserve anything. So therefore, when we don't receive something that we think we should get, we're not disappointed because we don't think we should get it, right? It's just a beautiful place to live. It says here, uh, joy born of selflessness has no negative consequences. On the contrary, it brings us the highest level of spiritual experience, a taste of the world to come. This is why Sarah's son was named Yitzhak, laughter, a foretaste of the Messianic era when our mouths will be filled with laughter. In the book, Letter of the Ages, the commentators talk about the angry person, which anger is, uh, the root of anger is pride and arrogance. And so, 
The angry person is often very a, de a depressed person. Why? Because they think that everybody should be paying them respect, paying them honor, giving them glory, following their edicts, listening to their advice. And when people don't, they get angry, they get mad uh, because they feel like somebody owes them something. The, hum the, humi the person who's humble doesn't feel like they're owed anything. Rather, they feel like they should be giving, 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 which takes us back to the charity discussion. When you are a, a not a generous person, you feel like everybody owes you something. Uh, the, you know, you want to take, 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 or at least keep, keep, keep. But when you're somebody who's generous, that's a humble person because you feel like you want to give, give, give. And, and usually generous people, one of their big challenges, they don't feel like they're giving enough. They don't feel like they're giving enough. They want to give more. And they're disappointed when they're not, they're not able to give more. So going back, we're, we don't have a lot of time uh, left, but I want to go back and say when, um, when uh, Noah left uh, the ark and planted the vineyard, he was met by uh, the Sutton, cursed be he. And it says here in uh, Rabbi Monk's commentary, Call of the Torah, it says, uh, the Satan, we say the Sutton, cursed be he, came toward him and offered to help him in planting. And Noah accepted. It's curious why he would accept, but okay. What did Satan do? Cursed be he, he took a sheep and slaughtered over the, over the vine. Then he did likewise with a lion, and then later with a pig. The earth of the vineyard was watered with the blood of these animals. On the very day it was planted, the vine bloomed and bore fruit. On that same day, Noah gathered the grapes, pressed them, and drank. Why did the Sutton do this? When a man drinks one glass of wine, he stays meek as a lamb. When two glasses, he becomes strong as a lion, believing no one is his equal. But when three or four are imbibed, he becomes a pig. He dirties his clothes and wallows in the filth. The drinker who is incapable of controlling his vice stumbles along the downhill path which leads to shame. And then, and then eventually becomes and acts like a pig. What's the point here? Judaism um, is quite okay with drinking. Drinking wine, drinking stronger drinks. In fact, as I point out before in Deuteronomy 14, Hashem even says, take the money for the festival that you've saved for yourself and go and buy meat and buy strong drink. God is completely okay with it. What Hashem is not okay with it is drunkenness. Now, as, uh, religions that are uh, aesthetic in nature would say, well, the best thing to do then is avoid alcohol completely. But really, um, that's not exactly God's uh, choice. Now, some people who have a drinking problem, maybe that's what they have to do. But the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, the sages say we should never forbid something to us that is permitted, nor should we permit something to ourselves which is forbidden. The goal here is to do all things in moderation, including a drinking wine. This is why Jews drink, to be sure. But Jews generally drink with respect to a mitzvah. Um, in fact, there, I wrote a little list down just kind of to myself here, thinking about we, wine is included in nearly every um, religious festival. Religious, not festival, but religious activity. For instance, um, we have wine at Kiddush. We have wine at Habdallah. We have wine at weddings. We have wine at Brismala. And when I say we have wine, I don't mean it's just part of the, the party. I mean, it's actually part of the ceremony. We have, uh, yeah, bris malah, circumcision. We have wine of the pidyon haben, the redemption of the firstborn. We have wine of the Pesach Seder. We even have wine in order to say birkat hamazon. So 
we have these this wine. So in a Jewish world, wine is associated with mitzvahs. In the secular world, wine and, and other alcohol is associated with party, with uh, bars, with, uh, you know, uh, it has kind of like, I'm just going to drink to relax or whatever, uh, you know, uh, that kind of thing. It's not necessarily associated with religion. In other words, if we can take what is permitted and elevate it to a level of holiness, that is one way in which we can avoid drunkenness because our focus is not on the drinking, but rather on the mitzvah, which the wine or the other alcohol only serves to enhance and elevate, but not the soul source. I hope that makes sense to you. This is why uh, Rabbi Monk points out that before we say the baraka for Kiddush on Erev, we say, Savri uh, Maranan, you know, by your leave, my, my rabbis, masters, and teachers. And he says here that this uh, address can also mean to listen or pay attention. In other words, we say that little phrase before we take Kiddush as a reminder that we, when we enjoy what God allows us to enjoy, we're doing it in a, in a, ultimately in an effort to serve Him rather to serve ourselves. So he says here, since wine can lead to drunkenness, and as a result of that, it brought a curse on the world, that this, according to uh, Midrash Tankuma and, and Pekude, uh, excuse me, Tankuma Pekude, that we are to be warned not to get drunk on this wine that we are about to drink. So, <clears throat> by the way, I just want to cover a couple things real quickly. We have the story that continues here uh, that uh, Noah got drunk. He debased himself, and in verse 22, Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father's nakedness and told his, his two brothers outside. And Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it upon both their shoulders, and they walked backwards and covered their father's nakedness. Their faces were turned away, and they saw not their father's nakedness. Now, there's difference of opinion about what Ham had done. Some, some say, and it's a little... Um, it's a little risque, if you will, but some say that Ham actually castrated his father. It's terrible. Um, some say that he actually created, uh, or committed rather, a, a sexual act, a molestation, if you will, a rape even, on his father. Uh, that is the reason that the ancient commentators said that, is because it's that type of thing would, that would um, cause such a great curse to come upon these people um, for all these generations. They would actually become slaves. Uh, when Shem and Japheth walked backwards with, a, with the, the cloak to cover their father, the sages bring down that this is why Jewish people today merit to wear the tallit, both the tallit gadol and the tallit katan. So... That's, I thought that was a very interesting insight, that we uh, walk about today wearing the Talit Katan and wearing the Talit Gadol uh, as a direct result of the mitzvah that Shem, particularly Shem, and Japheth did to, to their father Noah in, in properly covering him, um, which serves as an insight that when we walk around with these garments, we ourselves are properly covered. In verse 25, 
Noah curses his son and says that he shall be a slave. And I wanted to bring down a Baal-Turim that uh, it says here, a slave of slaves shall he be. In Baal-Turim it says the gematria of Yeyeh, he shall be, is 30. This is an allusion to the fine of 30 shekels for killing a slave. Now, Rabbi uh, Hirsch uh, was talking about slavery and he says that, uh, that he sees slavery as the fatal consequence of man's inability to control his instincts. Whoever lacks the will to control his passions becomes first the slave of his own senses. I believe, incidentally, that this is what the Apostle Shaul was saying when he wrote his letter to the Romans. And he was talking in Romans chapter 7 about what I want to do, I don't want to do. He, it says here he becomes a slave of his own senses and then the slave of other people. But he who knows how to remain in control of his nature and how to forgo the enslavement of his sensual appetites will never let himself be led away, excuse me, led about and enticed, not even by chains of gold. So uh, Sforno writes that slavery means a degradation to the lowest level of the social hierarchy whose goal is to preserve the other social strata from the baneful influence of moral depravity. And, he, and Rabbi Monk, um, talking about Shem, talking about that Shem's goal was not to be a slave, but rather was to uh, spread knowledge of the Word of God. The reason I wanted to bring this up is because I saw it, an allusion here to the Baal of Turim, talking about a slave of slave shall you be, that 30 uh, shekels of silver was the price, according to Exodus 21-32, that one would pay for killing a slave. The Messiah Yeshua and Matthew chapter 27, 8 through 10, was betrayed uh, at the price of 30 pieces of silver. Why? Because he had to redeem us as, from what Rabbi Monk was just talking about. He had to redeem us from being uh, slaves to sin, slaves to our debased nature. And as a result, we had to die. Although we didn't die, he died in our place. And as a result, there was a 30 shekel fine for killing a slave. Mashiach was the slave, so to speak, taking our place. Therefore, those who gave him up for sacrifice had to pay 30 shekels of silver. Baruch Hashem. Well, that's the end of our time and looking at the sixth portion. Uh, it is preparation day. It is the day in which we prepare to enter into a foretaste of the Olam Haba. And uh, I just want to bless you that you should have a, a wonderful uh, Shabbat. And I pray that everybody will be able to join us at the synagogue for Shabbat, uh, either in person or online. May it be God's will that we have people watching from all over the United States, and in fact, uh, from all over the world. And uh, so have joy today. Bless somebody today. Speak a blessing over somebody's life today. Invite them to synagogue. If you don't live uh, in Dallas-Fort Worth, invite them over to your house to watch. Invite them over for Arab Shabbat. Uh, invite them to do a mitzvah. Tell them about the Torah. Tell them about the Mashiach. And uh, most of all, smile at everybody. And may God help us to be smiling people. Amen. Always and all the time. I love you very much. I thank you. We will... Uh, Pick up with Parsha Lech Lecha next week. Baruch Hashem. Blessings and Shalom to everybody. Amen.
Hashem. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome. We are here this morning to look at the uh, first Aliyah of the Parasha Lech Lecha. Ruk Hashem. Fine Yom Rishon morning. Hope your week is uh, going well. Hope you had a great Shabbat. Uh, I know we did. If you were with us, I was so blessed to have you with us and uh, look forward to having you with us the next Shabbat. Baruch Hashem. Looks like everything's going well on the technology side of things. So Baruch Hashem, we are Facebooking live on our uh, Sar Shalom Facebook page. We're also recording this with God's help through the uh, Anchor podcast so that uh, people can listen to it throughout the, throughout the day or what have you. So Parsha Lech Lecha. And a very interesting parasha, it begins on uh, uh, page 55, 54, 55 of the Chumash, if you happen to have the art scroll Chumash. It is the book of Breshit, the book of Genesis, chapter 12, the first Aliyah, an Aliyah a day keeps the Yetzirah away. Amen. We want the Yetzirah to be far, far from us. Baruch Hashem. So it is the first 13 verses of the um, chapter 12. We learn as we were looking at the final Aliyah uh, on Shabbat of uh, Parashah Noah, we're introduced into the godly character of Noah, of uh, Avram. We referred to him as Avraham, even though the uh, text here, his name has not been changed yet, as of yet. It's still Avram and Sarai. Uh, it's not yet been changed to Abraham and Sarah, but it soon will be, thank God. And we have the opening verse that says, Adonai, Vayomer Adonai el Avram, Lech Lecha. Adonai said to Avram, Go for yourself from your land, from your relatives, and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. This uh, portion starts something that is really... Uh, wonderful. In fact, um, I love, it's really interesting to me, when you look at the Art Scroll Chumash commentary, the opening commentary to this verse, to this section, is titled, A New Creation. Now, for those of you who come from Christian backgrounds and are perhaps familiar with this term, uh, you know, Hashem, through Mashiach Yeshua, makes us a new creation. Uh, all of those thoughts that people read in the apostolic letters, in the Basarot, <clears throat> and so on, come from Jewish thought. There's really, uh, there's really nothing new, necessarily. Uh, it is simply renewed. The thoughts are brought to their highest uh, understanding, to their highest meaning. And so in this case, we are now speaking in this parasha about Abraham leaving his land, leaving his relatives, leaving his father's house, going to the land that Hashem is going to show him. And this, as as the commentators bring down, is the beginning of a new creation, which teaches us something extremely valuable. When we go out, when we follow Hashem, when we leave our land, when we leave that that which is familiar to us, when we leave our relatives, when, when we leave, relatives can be synonymous with our traditions, our customs. Uh, some people grew up um, in a Hispanic culture. Some people grew up in a French culture. Some people grew up in a, uh, a Jamaican culture. Whatever the culture may be, <clears throat> with those cultures come, unfortunately, 
uh, a lot of false ideas, false theologies. I grew up Catholic. I grew up Baptist. I grew up uh, Buddhist. I grew up uh, Wiccan, whatever the case may be. <clears throat> but to follow God means that we have to leave our relatives. We have to leave those traditions and follow after God's will and for our life. Um, as an aside, people, a lot of times what, what hampers people from following the will of God is what I refer to as nostalgia. Uh, we just, we we get carried away with the way that we've always done things, the way that grandma did it, the great, way that grandfather did it. And a lot of times that binds people's souls and they want to do that rather than doing things that God God said to do. And so we've got to kind of follow Avraham's example and leave our relatives Leave and leave our father's house. Messiah Yeshua said that if you love your father and mother more than me, you don't have any part of me. Uh, this is what he's talking about. Not that we're not supposed to love our parents or love our wives or love our children or love our relatives. That's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is, is that you have to want to be like Avraham, where you're willing to leave everything for me. It doesn't mean that you have to leave everything for me, necessarily. I hope you understand the difference what I'm trying to say there. It just simply means that you have to be willing to say, hey, I'm not stuck with what my mother did or my father did or my brother's doing or my sister's doing or, or what have you. I want to follow Hashem. And so it says here, a new creation. It says the Sidra begins a new birth of mankind. Why do they call it a new birth of mankind? Because Abraham is considered the first Jew, which is also a wonderful lesson for those hundreds of maybe thousands, and someday, God willing, millions of people who were not born Jewish or grew up in a Jewish home, but have become converts to Judaism. Because the very first Jew who ever existed was Abraham, and he himself was a convert. He himself was a new creation. So it says here, the first 2,000 years from creation were the era of desolation, Adam had fallen, Abel had been murdered, idolatry had been introduced to the world, ten dismissal generations had been washed away by the deluge, and the ten generations from Noah had failed. Abraham was born in the year 1948. When was Israel um, made a nation? In our modern times, obviously, uh, 1948. So he was born in the year 1948, from creation. In the 2,000 years, uh, four years after the dispersion and six years before the death of Noah, he started to influence disciples to serve Hashem, which, by the way, is another valuable lesson for us. We must follow in the footsteps of our father, Avram, who is the father of our faith. The, this is why the Apostle Shul wrote about Avram and said, uh, you know, his faith was credited to him as righteousness. It didn't mean... Well, the interesting point about that is that some people say, well, uh, since Abraham's faith was considered as righteous, our works aren't really important. But uh, if we actually go and read the story, we find that Abraham was... The big thing about Abraham was that he was obedient to the word of God. He actually did what God said. And as a result of that, his faith was credited to him as righteousness. So... We just got to be very careful, and it all begins by simply reading. Uh, so anyway, he says here, um, with Abraham, there began a profound change 
in the spiritual nature of mankind. Why? Because it says that Abraham went out and began to influence disciples to serve Hashem. So again, what does this teach us? It teaches us that the first Jew was a con- was a convert, and his passion, what he wanted to do most, what he and his wife both. It wasn't just Abraham. The sages say in the Midrash uh, Rabbah that Abraham converted the men and Sarah converted the women. But his passion was to reach people for Hashem. He was an evangelist. He was very evangelical. It is not true. It is absolutely historically uh, not true that Judaism uh, is a religion that that does not uh, and did not uh, care anything about being evangelical, going out and proverbially knocking on doors, so to speak, and bringing in converts. Today, modern Judaism says that, uh, you know, Jews don't do that. If if you want to come, okay, you can come. We'll kind of test you to see if you want to come. But but really, we don't, uh, you know, we don't, we don't push our religion on people. No, 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 we don't do that. We don't do that. We're not like the Christians. We're not like the Muslims. We don't go out and try to uh, find people. None of that, my friends, is true. 100% false. When you look at the Talmud, when you look at uh, Jewish tradition, when you look at Jewish history, when you look uh, right here, Judaism began as a very evangelical religion. The only reason it ceased being evangelical was because of the persecution that we experienced during the Middle Ages, particularly with the Crusades. That shut the door to that, and unfortunately today... uh, People are not being taught about Torah because uh, of these things. But Abraham and Sarah <coughs> were very, very evangelical. And right here in the Kehl, I mean, it's not the Kehl Humash, excuse me, the art school Humash, it's saying that this was their mission. They left, they discovered that there's one God, they discovered that He controls everything, and their their mission in life began by trying to bring other people. So again, it teaches us a lesson. We need to be people that are constantly trying to gather in the holy sparks, like Abraham and Sarah. So it says, With Abraham there began a profound change in the spiritual nature of mankind. The plan of creation was for all human beings to have an equal share in fulfilling the divine mission and for the Torah to be given to all mankind. Let me read that part again, because, again, this is in the, uh, this is in the art school of Humash. This is right here. I'm reading for you Art School Humash, okay? Page 54. With Abraham there began a profound change in the spiritual nature of mankind. The plan of creation was for all human beings. This is why it says, I believe it's Isaiah 58, where it talks about the man who... uh, who follows, uh, uh, I'm sorry, the man who, who keeps the Shabbat. I believe it's Isaiah 58. I, I think I'm right about that. Uh, the, the word there is not Jew. Uh, the word there is a human being who wants to keep the Sabbath. God's heart is for human beings. Doesn't matter your background. Doesn't matter the color of your skin. Uh, doesn't matter male, female. Doesn't matter, born here, born there. Doesn't matter, grew up in Jewish home, not grew up in Jewish home. None of that matters. God is after human beings. People might ask me, Rabbi, who's your target? Who are you after? You after young? You after old? Uh, You after black? You after white? You after Hispanic? Uh, I'm after humans. So if you qualify as a human, I'm after you. (laughs) 
so to speak, right? I want you, Ruka Shem. Uh, it says, the plan of creation was for all human beings to have an equal share. Equal share. Uh, Hashem is the first one who believes in equal opportunity. An equal share in fulfilling the divine mission and for the Torah to be given to all, all, say it with me, all, all mankind. So <clears throat> this is God's heart. This is why Abraham and Sarah went out. And then we, we learn they didn't begin. They even they were so zealous. They didn't wait until they got to the to the Holy Land to start doing this. We're going to learn that in just a second. So in verse two, it says, and I will make for you a great nation. I will bless you <clears throat> and I will make your name great and you shall be for a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who curses you, I will curse and all the families of the earth shall bless themselves by you. Now, I don't have the source in front of me, unfortunately. I'll try to find this source and uh, maybe share it in another Aliyah this week, uh, if I can find the source. But um, there is a source. I've read it multiple times. I've talked about it from the pulpit many times. That says that this phrase, and all the families of the earth shall bless themselves by you, can be interpreted vis-a-vis -vis the Hebrew to mean all the families of the earth shall be grafted into you, grafted into you or grafted in by you. So we talk about uh, non-Jews coming in and being grafted into, um, into the family. This is where this comes from. Uh, and incidentally, when you take um, a branch from a, a wild tree and you graft it into a natural tree, uh, it eventually becomes indistinguishable from the natural branches over the course of time. And in relative short order, it becomes indistinguishable. So uh, there is no difference between a grafted branch and a natural branch. In fact, the natural branches, as the scripture talks about, and also Jewish tradition talks about, can be broken off and regrafted. Uh, so uh, this is why the sages taught that if someone is a convert to Judaism... You're not allowed to make that distinction. You're not allowed to, when you're introducing people at a party or a yontov, you're not allowed to say, oh, hey, listen, uh, this is Shlomo, and, uh, you know, he, he's, uh, he's my Jewish brother, and uh, here over here is Ari, and Ari's a convert. You're not allowed to do that because, uh, because uh, there's no difference between the two. Uh, one was born naturally. One was born as a new creation. Uh, the rea and here, here's the reason. The reality, the reality is we're, we're all new cre creations. That's the reality. The reality is, is that at Mount Sinai, we were all born again. The reality is, at Mount Sinai, we were all converts. The reality is, is that our father, is a, uh, Abraham, is a convert. That's the reality. So the reality is, is why are you making a distinction when you yourself... Uh, I, I wish I could get into that. It's, it's, it's on my heart, but uh, there's uh, a whole another, another um, source that talks about that that says why are you uh it rebukes um, someone in the source about making a distinction saying this one was formerly his his family was formerly an idolater and uh and the, the source I, I'm, I'm kind of paraphrasing from memory um but the source says why are you making that distinction about that person when our fathers were idolaters in egypt <laughs> so uh it's a beautiful it's beautiful i, I wish i could uh, have it in front of me to tell you about it uh, but trust me it's there everything i tell you with god's help is the truth i tell you so <clears throat> verse four so abraham went as 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 adonai had spoken to him and lot went with him and Av avram was 75 years old 
when he left Haran. Oh, by the way, before I mention about the importance of that little phrase there, let me say, when it says, go for yourself, the phrase, which is where we get the name of our parasha, Lech Lecha, it means go, go out, right? It says, but really, and it translates here, <coughs> excuse me, in, in the art scroll, um, the way it should be, I suppose, which is go for yourself. Meaning that God is trying to tell us that when we go and follow him, it's for our own good. <clears throat> go for yourself literally is understood as go for your own good. Go for your own good. Go out from your birthplace. Go out from your father's house. And this is for your own good. I love, uh, there's a, a phrase that I heard uh, that I, I want to apply to this way of life. And that is that this way of life um, will help you live a, a better life uh, and it will help you to live life better. It will help you to live a better life and it will help you to live life better. Meaning that sometimes we we look for solutions to our problems, solutions to have more peace, to have more joy, to have a better family. We want our children to be better. We want our husbands and wives to be better. We want uh, our households to be filled with the Spirit of God. And this is what Hashem is saying to, to us. If we will follow His Torah, which is His original path, which is His His will for our life, then we will lech lecha. We will be going out for our own good. We will be going out for our own benefit. Hashem wants us to follow His Torah, uh, and, but it's not because He just wants us to be obedient slaves and do His will. You know, humans, sometimes we think about that. Unfortunately, as humans, we very often are just, we have control issues. Sometimes we want people to do what we say because we think that we're so smart that whatever we say is the number one best. And obviously, we, since we said it, it's true. And so we just try to control people. We try to manipulate people. We try to we make up rules because we want people to do what we want them to do. And then we get mad and we say, well, people are, people are going to do their own thing. And uh, all that's based on our own uh, desire to control people. Hashem is not interested in controlling us. He's interested in blessing us. Because Hashem knows, just like when we follow this way of life, the end result is blessing. In the same way in which, when we have rules for our children, most of the time, as parents, we're not simply trying to control our children. We're not simply trying to be oppressive to them. I know that they feel that way sometimes. Uh, and and we, when we were kids, probably felt that way about our parents. But the reality is, is that when we make up these rules so far, so uh, so to speak, that our goal is that the end result of that is going to be blessing. So Hashem tells us to go out for ourselves. So we hear in verse four. We're still in verse four. Excuse me. A little bit of sniffles this morning. I was uh, changing the weather maybe. So Abraham went as Adonai had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Went with him, and Abraham was seventy-five years old when he left Haran. So so much for it's too late to turn back now. So much for it's uh, can't teach an old dog new tricks, right? He's 75, and he's changing his way of life. I, I like that very much. I like that because, you know, we seek out young people. Uh, we desire that young people should come to follow Hashem. Um, 
But we should never lose sight of the fact that it's never too late to start following God. It's never too late. Many people have come to our synagogue and they've lived their entire life as non-Jews. They did not know what they did not know. And now they come to find and they wonder, um, I wonder if it's too late. You know, I'm, 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 I'm a senior citizen maybe. Maybe some of them are. Well, Abraham is your father, right? And he was 75. So there you go. Abraham took his wife Sarah and Lot, his brother, uh, his brother's son, excuse me, and all their wealth they had, they had amassed, and the souls they had made in Haran. Now that's one of the most important phrases of this opening aliyah, the souls they had made in Haran. The comments bring down, it says um, here, the souls refer to those whom they had converted to faith in Hashem, for Abraham converted the men and Sarah the women. According to the simple meaning, it also refers to the servants, it says. But the sages understood that this is referring to the souls they had made in Haran. Uh, and in the Kehol Tumash, there is a little bit expanded version of this. The uh, introduction to, the, to this section in the Kehol is, is beautiful too. Um, let me find this, this statement here. Uh, they phrase it a little differently in the Kehot. It says, the followers they had persuaded to accept monotheism. Okay? Abraham's love of God was so palpable, palp palpable excuse me, that its intensity inspired others to abandon their idolatrous lifestyle and serve the one true God. Right? Like a large flame that attracts smaller sparks. I love that phrasing. Abraham's fiery love for God attracted and awakened the sparks of godly devotion dormant in these other people. Wow. What does that tell us? That tell us, tells us that we have to be people who are constantly or, uh, trying to stoke the fire. You know, the priest was not allowed. One of the priest's jobs was to make sure that the fire of the altar didn't go out. And uh, sometimes we have hills and valleys in our faith. We have hills and valleys. Sometimes we feel like we're on fire for God, and other times that we we feel that we're not so on fire, and we get a little depressed. And that's kind of the ebb and flow of life. We're humans. We go through those hills and valleys. But I will tell you that one way that we keep the fire burning is we got to stoke the fire. If you just light a fire and you put a bunch of logs on it, and it's a big uh, bonfire, if you just sit there and watch it and don't do anything to it, it'll eventually go out. It'll eventually go out. In fact, to that point, uh, well, before I tell you this uh, story that I've told many, many times, it's so uh, wonderful. Anyway, in order to keep the fire going, you have to what? You have to, you have to move the logs around. You have to stoke it. You have to add, add logs to it. You have to let, make sure a lot of air gets to it. What does that mean for us? It means that we have to, um, we have to study Torah. We have to pray. And then we have to pray and we have to do some more prayer. And then when we're done praying, we need to pray again. Uh, we need to uh, really, really make an effort to keep that fire going. Why? Because when the fire is ablaze in your heart, it naturally, spiritually attracts other sparks. And that's what we want. We want to attract other sparks. Now, there's a story I've told many times that, um, and this has to do with it. This was a, a pastoral story, actually. Uh, there's, there's a man who had not been going to church. <clears throat> it's a church story, but it's a good story. 
And so there was a man who had uh, not been going to church. And he, you know, the, the Yetzirahara <coughs> will tell you, oh, you know, it's uh, it's raining or it's, or it's cold or it's too hot or the, a leaf blew across the front yard. Uh, so don't go, don't go to shul this morning. So you don't go. The next week, uh, something else is going on. Don't go to shul this morning. Okay, so you don't go. The next week, uh, don't go to shul this morning. You know, uh, you just feel a little, little feverish. You know, don't go to shul. Okay, I won't. Next thing you know, the Yetzirah doesn't have to convince you to go to shul anymore because you're not going anymore. And then what happens is, is that your spiritual descent uh, happens rather rap rapidly and you end up crashing on the runway. So this man <coughs> did not go to his uh, congregation anymore. And so the pastor goes to his house. It's a, it's a winter day. He knocks on the door. The man opens the door and uh, they, he invites the pastor in. They sit down and have some, some tea or what have you. There's a fire bla blazing in the, in the hearth. In the hearth, excuse me, and uh, the pastor doesn't say anything about, to him about the uh, not missing the meetings or not coming. They just talk about pleasant things, talk about life. But while they're speaking, the pastor takes one of the blazing red hot coals from the fire and sets it out away on one of the bricks. And while they're talking, that blazing hot coal gets a little less red, and a little less red and gives off less heat, and less heat, and less heat, until as the, towards the end of the conversation, as things are, are winding down, that coal is now just a cold, black lump sitting there on the brick. And the man looked over at the coal that had previously been on fire and now was cold, and he looked back at the pastor and with tears in his eyes, he says, I want you to, I want to thank you for coming this today and preaching this important message to me. I'll see you at service next week. And so I've always loved that story. And I think it's so true that we have to stay in the fire. We have to stay in the passion. And it takes effort, my friends. It takes effort. It takes effort. None of us, myself included, none of us stay on the mountain all the time. It takes effort, and a lot of times that effort comes by just being around other people who are, who are motivating us and inspiring us to learn as well. So it continues and says, it was for this very end that God made Abraham and Sarah descend to Egypt to inspire whatever individuals they could to cleave to their godly source. So the reason that God wanted Abraham and Sarah to go to Egypt is because he was looking for holy sparks to gather. That's why the sages talk about that we were slaves in Egypt. A lot of times, friends, what we go through in life, we're thinking, man, why am I going through this life? Why am I working here? Why am I working there? Why am I going to this store? Why did I take this detour? We often wonder, what, and we think it's about us. And Hashem says, hey, it's not really about you. I just needed to put my fire over here. I need to take my torch over there. I need my lapide to go over here for a moment because there's a holy spark I need to inspire. And sometimes, and I, I trust this all the time, I trust that that many times we have no idea who we're impacting. No idea. You might, a, a woman may walk into a, a store that she doesn't typically shop at, but you know, it just so happens it's on the way. And so she thinks, oh, it's just on the way. I'm going to stop in here. Somebody sees her tackle. Somebody sees her demeanor. They see the smile on their face. They don't have any conversation whatsoever, but Hashem is working in the heart of that person. Same thing for a man. 
might see your kippah, might see your tzitzit, might see you getting flowers on Shabbat for your wife, doesn't know anything about what you're doing, but something God shows them, inspires them. They see the flame, they see the torch, they see the lapid. They don't even know what they're seeing, but it draws them in. I, you just, just know that that doesn't mean that we should invite people. Doesn't mean that we shouldn't have conversations with people. Doesn't mean we shouldn't love people. I'm just simply saying that we have to understand that uh, Hashem uses us even when we don't know we're being used. And so it's just a beautiful thing. So it continues on here, just to continue this thought. It says, as descendants of Avram and Sarah, we are also called upon to acquire souls in Haran. Insomuch as the word Haran is related to the word for anger. Haran is a metaphor for places that are indifferent or even hostile to holiness. Yet God sends their heirs of, uh, excuse me, God sends the heirs of Abraham and Sarah's legacy to Haran to seek out those who, for whatever reason, have become alienated from their roots and bring them under the wings of the divine presence, reconnecting them to God by involving them both in the study of Torah and the fulfillment of the mitzvahs. Now, somebody might read that and say, well, then, that, what do you mean, fallen from their heritage? Does that mean that they're talking about the Jews? Mm -mm. Not necessarily. Let me tell you why. The sages say that every man and woman have uh, a little dip in their lip right there. Right there. It's called the philtrum. The fil philtrum. I said that properly, I think. This little, this little area, this little dip right there. Everybody has it. In fact, reach up in your face right now and just touch it right there. Right there. See that little... That little area right there? Everybody has one. I've never met anybody who doesn't have one. The sages teach that there's an angel in the womb teaching every baby Torah. Why? Because every soul that's made comes from Shemayim, comes from the throne of God. And so the baby is being taught Torah by the angel. And when the angel, or excuse me, when the baby is about to be born, the angel taps the baby on the face right there. And causes it to forget Torah. And it leaves a little mark right there. And the reason is because the Bible says in Proverbs that it's the glory of God to conceal a thing. And it's the glory of kings to find it. We spend the rest of our lives returning to our source. Returning. This is why when people, when people who uh, come to Torah, it's so familiar. They didn't grow up in this way of life. But yet when they come, they're like, there's something familiar about this. And I would say, well, it is, isn't it? <laughs> so when we go out and find these holy sparks, we are encouraging people to return to that from which they become alienated. Where we, We're encouraging them to come back under the divine wings. This is why we need to find everyone who is wanting to follow a shim. And we need to be like our forefathers, Abraham and Sarah, who, who were in Haran and they made souls. That is, they made con converts. So it continues on. It says, they left and went to the land of Canaan. They came to the land of Canaan and Abraham passed into the land as far as the site of Shechem. Shechem is a place uh, where Joseph is buried and has messianic implications. Until the plain of Moray. Moray is another word for teacher. The Canaanite was there, uh, was, was then in the land. By the way, it brings down in the cave of Humash that uh, Abraham was led throughout the land by the clouds of glory, which is the same clouds of glory, the same. In fact, this is brought down in Baal Haturim, actually. It has the fact of the, the gematria 
um, of this uh, is the same gematria as uh, the clouds. Um, let's see if I can find that right quick in the Baal see if my eyes can catch it. I just uh, read it here earlier. Um, not seeing it, but oh, here it is. Baal HaTurim, it says, I will show you. It says the gematria of this word is 222, is equivalent of the word in Hebrew, uh, Ba'anim, excuse me, Ba'anaim, with clouds. This teaches that the clouds proceeded before Avram and showed him the way. <laughs> showed him the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. The clouds of glory led him throughout the land. So, um, we have here the idea that uh, Hashem showed him the land vis-a-vis -vis the clouds. And then the Son of Man will come on the clouds. So clouds are everywhere when it comes to Hashem. Why? Because the clouds are the Shekinah of God. So it says in verse 7, just to finish up and wrap up our reading for this morning. Adonai appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to Adonai, who appeared to him. From there he relocated to the mountain east of Bethel and pitched his tent there. Incidentally, this is the same altar. The sages bring down the same altar that Isaac was eventually offered on. The same altar that Noah offered. Same altar that Adam off, uh, offered upon. Same altar that Jacob offered upon. Same altar that Yeshua would have been. Same place that Yeshua had been offered. It's the same place. Same place. So it says, he pitched his tent and with, and with Bethel on the west and Ai on the, on the east, he built there an altar to Hashem and invoked the name of God. Then Abraham journeyed on, journeying steadily toward the south. There was a famine in the land, and Abraham descended to Egypt, to Mithraim, to sojourn there. For the famine was severe in the land, and it occurred, as he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, See, now I have known that you are a woman of beautiful appearance. She was evidently quite beautiful, uh, even in her older age. And it shall occur, when the Egyptians will see you, they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me. Uh, but uh, you they will let live. Please say that you are my sister, that it may go well with me for your sake, uh, that I might live on account of you. Tomorrow, with God's help, we will explore this phenomenon of going down to Egypt in the famine. Because very, very often, God produces trials and hardships in our life, but His end result is blessing. In fact, it's always blessing. That is the end of our Torah portion. I love you all sincerely. I thank you for joining me this morning. I pray that you have a fantastic, wonderful, amazing, joyful, and blessed day. That Hashem should cause your hearts to burn with passion for Him. And may it be God's will that He should cause you to bring in many, many, many holy sparks. Speak a blessing over your neighbors. Speak a blessing over your family. Uh, invite somebody uh, to shul this week. Invite somebody to watch online. Maybe if you don't live in Dallas-Fort Worth, invite them over to your house for Erev Shabbat. Um, just go about and uh, be like Abraham and Sarah and win souls for Mashiach Yeshua. Amen. Love you all very much. Have a great, wonderful, and blessed day. Baruch Hashem.